Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today, nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario. Very excited about this week's show, talking to an old friend of mine, the great Jody Nurse, who is a research assistant professor at the University of Waterloo. We actually went to high school together way back when, and Jody has just released a new book entitled Cultivating Communities, Women and Agricultural Fairs in Ontario. And it's certainly coincidental that the book is coming out now, just as we got the census numbers released about the contraction of rural Canada and the move to urban centers continues in this country or has continued for the last decade, at least. And parts of rural Canada are getting smaller in terms of population. But there's a great community of rural Canadians and agricultural customs, communities, cultures, all across the country. And this book really taps into how women operated in those spaces in the late 19th into the early 20th century and how the agency of women in those spaces not only changed the face of the fairs and the organizations, but it provided greater recognition to the work and the the labor that women were doing within agricultural and rural Canadian spaces. And This is a time in Canadian history and really North American history that we talk a lot about things like the suffrage movement and the active role women are playing in enforcing the recognition of their broader contributions to society, economically, culturally, socially, certainly politically. And this is another example of that, and maybe a more micro scale here of the fairs in Ontario. It has a lot of larger themes to it. And I was very excited to talk to Jody about the book. As she says on the show, she's been interested in this kind of stuff for a long time. A lot of her new work has gotten into things like supply management and uh, very interesting stuff from both a historical perspective and, and the history of those types of programs, but also has obviously a lot of modern day considerations to it. So it's always a joy for me to get the chance to talk to Jody. And I think you will understand why after you listen to our chat. So let's get right to my discussion with the great Jody Nurse. So the agricultural fair, it began uh, at the end of the 18th century, but it was really the 19th century that it started to build momentum. And I will say um, Ross Fair, Danny Sampson, they have some great studies that look at these early agricultural fairs. So I would direct anyone interested in those studies to look at this. But essentially, those early fairs were really about uh, improving farming, or that was their mandate anyways, um, that they were wanted to improve agriculture in the respective colonies um, and eventually the provinces. Um, and so that was their main focus. It was on livestock. It was on crops. It was pretty limited until the mid-19th century. And by the mid-19th century, these groups realized that to have a broader appeal to the rural community, they really needed to expand their exhibits. So that included including more types of crops, more types of livestock, but it also included having exhibits for women's work. And initially, this included more utilitarian items like dairy produce, so butter, cheese, and some of the domestic manufacturers, uh, woven goods, knitted goods. 
But that really started to change in the late 19th century when you see a, a really huge expansion into the types of things that were exhibited at these fairs. So you had everything going on from livestock shows to horse competitions, equestrian competitions. There were some carnival acts, although this was really discouraged by a lot of the local and township fair organizers. They wanted these to be educational events. But the the most uh, the, the exhibits that expanded the most really were women's exhibits, and that included everything from domestic manufacturers to fancy work and fine arts. It included a whole host of new types of exhibits for uh, vegetables, garden vegetables and fruits. It included exhibits also for flowers, uh, which was not present in some of the earliest fairs. And so those are some of the traditional, traditionally uh, feminine categories. And that, that changed over time. And this book that I've written is really about some of the changes from the 19th century. So what we understand were, you know, what women were supposed to exhibit in during those years to the 20th century when yes, they were still participating in what we would think of as some of those more traditional aspects of um, domesticity, but they were also now joining fair boards. They were in leadership roles and they were participating in livestock shows. So the fair itself, it's not a bazaar, it's not a market fair. These were about educating through competition. So there would be competitions for all of, of these categories that I've discussed. So it's, it's almost like a trade show more so than like a, a traditional fair, if you will. Yeah, in, in some aspects, definitely. And I think in some uh, industries now, the trade show has really taken over the place of the fair, right? Um, because what you'll have is you'll have specialized industries that promote the the newest machinery or the newest technology or, or whatnot. Um, and at the time, the fair really was the event that did that. They had the latest agricultural technology on display. But they also had the latest fashions uh, that were women were making for themselves. And of course, we can talk about some of the transitions into the 20th century when you have more ready-made goods and how that kind of um, competed with some of those more homemade items. But generally, it was about you know promoting the fair as a place of education. So as we see this transition from the 19th into the 20th century, it seems to me from listening to you that this almost mirrors a little bit of what's going on broadly in the country as women are becoming increasingly, I don't want to say involved, but increasingly recognized as having agency within a lot of wider social movements, political movements. Is that a fair statement to see that that wider societal change is being mirrored within the agricultural affairs and the agricultural community in general? Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Sean, um, and and very much true. And you you hit the nail on the head when you said recognition, because we know that women were obviously active in their communities with a lot of these earlier fairs, even though they weren't, their names weren't listed on the prize list, or they weren't recognized for their participation. They were there, they were visiting these fairs, they were participating in these fairs. 
it's interesting as well in the 19th century, you have women's exhibits and the name of the winner for that exhibit is a man's name, right? So obviously they were exhibiting their wife's work under, you know, the head of the household's name at that time. And so the recognition that women received by the, you know, the turn of the century, by the 20th century really starts to increase and you have women demanding this recognition, uh, you have fair boards starting to slowly discuss integrating women in leadership roles onto fair boards. I have a, my first chapter of the book is really focused on women and the agricultural society. So not even, you know, what they were doing as exhibitors or as visitors at the fair or performers or entertainers, but what the women were doing in terms of organizing, administering the fairs at that time. And the influence of earlier movements towards women's uh, place in voluntary organizations and how that was changing, obviously the rights that they were gaining um, in the early 20th century were having a significant impact. Um, early feminist movements, of course, as well. And that was resulting in women by the 1910s, by the 1920s, and really we see significant change during the 1930s in these organizations. So we could say maybe they're late to act in some ways, but women are making themselves heard. And finally, at the provincial level, which really did influence those local township and county fairs, women had their own uh, women's section, it was called at the time, which is now women's division, where they could elect their own presidents, vice presidents, uh, you know, directors. And there was some really interesting conversations going on at that time about women's roles and what it should be in the agricultural fair. So you've been talking about the way these things are organized, and I've noticed you've used plural in a couple of occasions, talking about the administrations, the organizations, the administrations, and how they were put together. So what was the structure of the way in which the fairs were put together? Did you have any sort of centralization or was it all local communities coming together? Because it's interesting that you would see similar patterns across the province, but was there something central that helped push things along? That's a, a great question. I didn't really explain that earlier, Sean, that these various township county fairs um, were built on a structure in the 19th century that they were given grants to establish these township and county fairs. And so they were under an umbrella of a larger kind of centralized organization that was they were had to report to in order to get money from the government at that time. So they were in some ways directed by by a more centralized group. And by the 20th century, this association was called the Ontario Association of Agricultural Societies. So what you have are fairs and there's a development over this period of the prominence of county fairs and then township fairs. And typically township fairs had to have delegates or directors that were appointed to county fair to county societies. They were all run by, at the local level, by an agricultural society, but generally those agricultural societies still, you know, reported to the provincial organization. 
And even though these fairs or the the societies that ran them, and I'm I'm bad for kind of talking about societies and then changing to fairs, agricultural societies were the groups that ran these fairs, even though they essentially reported to this provincial body, they were very autonomous in the types of classes that they had at fairs, uh, at their fairs, I should say, and, and the kind of prizes that they offered. These were really community events. So at some level, yes, there were mandated kind of um, goals provincially and types of categories that the provincial association wanted to see at these local fairs. But those local fairs did have a degree of autonomy about how they were going to run their own fair. And you really see that in the reports that emerged in the early 20th century. And just in terms of the timing of them, too, there's certainly a tradition where we grew up in the, the area of fall fairs. And are these types of things also associated with the, the harvest in any way, given that they're exhibiting things that typically you would think when you're exhibiting produce, you'd wait until the end of the season when you can have everything out of the ground like are these seasonally in the fall exactly yeah so most fall fairs and again the fall fair kind of terminology just is the fall fair is essentially the same thing as the agricultural fair sometimes you had an agricultural fair in the spring earlier on or the summer but most agricultural fairs were fall fairs they were held in the fall because exactly what you said that was harvest time so it was the time where farmers and and others in the community that grew things or made things throughout the summer months could actually display um, display their harvest, display their produce and their products and their efforts. And it was seen as a harvest celebration as well, certainly. And then just geographically, for, take, for example, where we grew up or, or Guelph, in the 19th century, that would have been a lot more rural, a lot more farms than today, a place like Guelph or Georgetown, really more suburban type communities. So when we're talking about a fair, what general area would a typical fair service and, and from how far would people be able to come and what was deemed too far for someone to go? So like just in terms of organizing them and putting them on, what are we talking about geographically across the province? Well, it's really interesting because at one point there were over 350 fairs, wow. uh, agricultural fairs held in Ontario. Now there's just over 200, um, but there's still 200 agricultural fairs. And the geography and how wide of a um, impact that they had on their communities or how far people would come, to, I should say, really depended on that community. So in some areas uh, that had a lot of farms or maybe political influence or whatever the case might be, they might have a really successful um, township fair that was separate but close to a really successful uh, township fair and those townships would have a county fair, whereas other areas maybe that were more marginally agricultural uh, they would draw from a wider area to get people to come and participate at these events so it really depended on the region uh, it depended on of course as I mentioned their ability to draw 
people from the countryside, but it also depended on the community itself and their willingness to host a fair and organize a fair. And so in some areas, in a very small geographical area of the province, you'd have many fairs going on around the same time. In other areas, you would, uh, you know, have fewer fairs. And that really depended on the landscape, the environment, but also the community will. So let's get back into a little about what women are doing in these fairs and the way in which the fairs are, as the title suggests, cultivating communities. Because you mentioned earlier about what was deemed more uh, women's work within rural communities and, and women's work on farms. And how much of that is or was governed by tradition versus any sort of other societal uh, pressures that were put put in place at the time you know that victorian idea of women in the domestic sphere so how much does that influence what's going on on the farms versus just the idea of men being out in the field and strength and all that stuff that people <laughs> would talk about where do we start to see the women become more active within the fairs themselves? Well, yeah, the, the name itself, you know, I chose cultivating community, obviously, because we're talking about agricultural fairs, hence the culti cultivating. But the community is this is what women were doing. And it, it, it they were cultivating a, a community amongst everyone in their township, in their county, but they are also cultivating community for themselves as women, um, making a place for themselves at the fair within these agricultural societies. And uh, you, you talked about kind of the change over time the, um, and then what kind of exhibits were women supposed to participate in and maybe how that changed. So I really see that this book is kind of filling a void in the literature about women's contributions to agricultural societies and fairs, but also how the boundaries of those contributions changed. And so you mentioned, you know, kind of the prominent idea of what was proper womanhood. Well, obviously that that has changed over time in the 19th century. It really was linked to these kind, kind of concepts of domesticity, middle-class respectability and taste in, and those, you know, those could be more universal characteristics and concepts that were applied to whether it was a rural woman and a town woman or urban woman. But then there were also, one might argue some other concepts like thrift and industry that was still very much important to rural women. And, and they were supposed to exhibit those characteristics at fairs as well. So initially, I, I think I mentioned before about how at first some of the earliest fairs, women participated by showing their utility uh, on the farms. So that was by adding value to farm products. So if that was milk, for example, well, they would add value by turning that milk into cheese or butter. And those um, items were exhibited at fairs or they would be, you know, um, spinning wool and then making something with that wool. Or even if they were purchasing textiles, they were adding value by turning that fabric into a beautiful family quilt. And so those items themselves really had a lot to say and they were representative and symbols of the kind of characteristics 
um, that some of the reformers of the time wanted rural women to exhibit, but also women themselves, what they valued and what they cared about. Over time, though, uh, you you mentioned, too, the changes politically for women and socially for women, and you see women not willing to stay kind of in the background as helpers, um, but wanting to take on leadership roles at the fair so that they have a greater say, not only in the types of things that they can participate in, but also directing those classes and those exhibits and and how they're displayed and and um you know what kind of categories are available and so we start to see discussions of this in in some of the annual reports for these and i looked at a whole host of government documents they really cared about agricultural affairs not so much today but at the time they were still seen as very much educational progressive institutions that could teach the countryside something men and women and so they reported on these fairs in those documents there were annual reports from the fairs themselves there were membership lists all sorts of things like that but also obviously newspapers i use newspapers i use diaries photographs um, and then material cultural things so i actually looked at um, a number of artifacts of of things that women made from some of the earlier fairs and have left behind as kind of their legacy um, to their families in terms of some of their skills and talents. And, and they like to exhibit whether that was fancy work or a family quilt or something like that. So that changed over time. It continued those, those traditionally feminine exhibits that remained, but they, those exhibits, and I talk about this in the book, and there's too many examples to list about how those exhibits changed over time, even if they were still, you know, domestic exhibits, there were important changes going on. But when you look more broadly than that, you see women starting to participate in livestock competitions where they had never done that previously, or if they did, it was really a name only. Um, and I can explain what I mean by that, I guess. Um, there were widowers uh, that owned livestock that would maybe exhibit an, uh, a cow or maybe they'd exhibit a horse in the 19th century, but they probably weren't the ones at the lead line necessarily um, at the halter of that animal. Whereas by the 20th century, you had women and, and large part, I would say, to some of the girls clubs. Initially, they were called boys and girls clubs that became the 4-H associations that really encouraged both men and women, boys and girls, to participate in a broader array of agricultural pursuits. And so they were opening the door for women to claim authority uh, in in the livestock show ring, in the, the horse ring. And and so women really started to participate in those sorts of events as well. Um, so those are just some of the things. I also have a whole chapter that talks about kind of entertainment and how women were expanding their presence on the fairgrounds in other ways uh, through their fundraising efforts and and through their ability to be performers, um, paid and voluntary performers at various times. So there is that change going on. But it's interesting to hear you talk because as you're discussing women becoming more involved as exhibitors at these things, it strikes me that there is a, almost a tension between the tangible and intangible that goes along with a lot of domestic work. Like you can't see 
the work that goes into raising a child, for instance, right? That that's something that you can't mm -hmm. put on exhibit. I, I guess in theory you could put the kid up there, but that would be. Uh, and they oh, did. Okay, they, they did. did. All right, so they did that. Yeah. So baby shows were a very real thing, and uh, initially, so I again I talk about this in the book as kind of a judgment of motherhood in some ways, and it's really fascinating that the evolution of the baby show um, shocking as well, but also some fairs continue to have baby shows, but it's usually now about the long the baby with the longest hair, for right. example, or something. Uh, more to that effect, whereas in the early 20th century, in the mid 20th century, there would actually be nurses and doctors hired as judges to judge the baby's health and um, and which baby was the best ba baby based on physical characteristics and size and scale. And and then just think about entering your ch child in that sort of competition and you know, if you won, well, great. But, you know, if, if you had a hard time in that, that um, competition, how would you feel as, as a, a mother, as a parent? And, and so it's, it's really fascinating. There's stories like that that I wish I knew more about. The, the documents don't go into great depth, but I have a great, I think it's from the Lakehead exhibition, actually. There's a, a great, um, image included in the book about one of those early baby shows and uh, the the prize the winning baby is being held by a group of nurses nurses and a wow. doctor it'd be a kind of crazy project that you'd sort of the sort of thing you would see on on like dateline where they would follow those babies the ones who won compared to the ones who lost to see if like where are they in 50 years right one of those <laughs> things did it make yeah. a difference and and there is Exactly. And there is work on this. Um, there's there's scholarly there's been some scholarly attention, not uh, necessarily at the, the local fair kind of baby show, but at these these baby competitions that were also held in other in, by other institutions and also at larger exhibitions yeah. as well. I, I know like Disney still does baby races like so they <laughs> you have babies and they put them at one end of the something and they have to crawl to the other end and yeah. everyone chants you go race those babies but i mean that's sort of a fun little not very harmful thing everyone gets like, a prize and again yeah i don't yeah i don't see too much too much harm yeah. in that right uh, but when you're making an assessment on a child's health um and and beauty even um that could be a little more hurtful yeah. if uh you know, I think as a parent, I don't know. No, it strikes me that that maybe not the best uh, the best approach to judging children, uh, judging babies, or, or judging the job a parent is doing. That's anyone's job anyway. But to get back to the idea of materiality, though, like, is there part of this process is giving agency not only to women but also to the materiality? Uh, are the materials that women are producing. You mentioned quilts, uh, other textile mm -hmm. things that they're making. You, you mentioned dairy too, being on display. Like th those are material things that women are producing in the domestic sphere that are now on display and being put on, I, I would imagine, equal footing with some of the other agricultural products that are on display at a fair. So do we see the agency of the material? Is that part of the larger push towards a greater recognition of women's contributions to the broader rural lifestyle. 
Yeah, and I argue that too by just by having these items on display that, as you mentioned, are seen as kind of private, um, domestic um, material things, to have them in a public setting um, and to have them valued as important, um, you know, that agricultural society deemed it important because they're hosting this competition. They want to see the best and brightest in these fields. And so, so that by itself made a space for women to showcase their talents in these areas and then to give legitimacy to those talents and that they are important to the family. And yeah, so I, I certainly, I think that's uh, very important. And, and that's, you know, there's questions too, and there's others that have talked about exhibitions and fairs and how display works in those venues. And I get into that in the chapters of as well about the various types of exhibits that went on, everything from food exhibits to flower exhibits, and then those more material things that had last lasting, longer lasting um, consequences, because something like a quilt, for example, keep coming back to that traditional kind of um, rural item, I would say, is, you know, it could be passed down for generations. So there's a memory with that as well. But certainly by putting it in a public space, it was to some degree saying this is important. Uh, you know, this is an important item. Well, that leads to a question like the, a lot of what is being put on display and a lot of what agricultural producers produce and sell is, is temporary by nature. Right? Uh, mm -hmm. you know, beef is not going to stay good forever, nor is any, you know, potatoes go bad. Like everything goes bad at some point. So there's a, a temporary aspect to everything that is on display and everything that's being produced with the exception, as you say, of these, of things like a quilt. So does that create at all within the fairs, any sort of hierarchy of goods that somehow the things that are being grown out of the ground or, or the livestock, are they seen as, better in some way or, or do we just is there some sort of tiered system in the way different people are perceiving the items that are put on display yeah i think that's a great question and you see it in the kind of prize money that was awarded to to various kind of exhibits and categories of of competition right so um traditionally and uh livestock classes were the the best funded and they they had the highest awarded prize money. And so that is not surprising because livestock was, again, uh, traditionally, it changes over time, but traditionally a male pursuit to be a breeder and an exhibitor in livestock. But surprisingly, some of the earliest um, women's exhibits were well-funded, uh, but not all items were funded the same. And so, for example, when the province was really trying to promote more production, the greater production of butter, um, there were some really valuable prizes given to the best butter um, at the fair. And so one year, I, I have an example, and if I remember correctly, there was um, for the uh, herd of cattle, which was traditionally a, maybe one of the top paying types of exhibits at the fair. It was paid less than a crock of butter one year. And that was 
to be fair, that was a special prize and they were awarding the winner of that butter with a sewing machine valued at $50 at the time um, in the 19th century to promote the production of certain items. So fair organizers decided what they thought were important at times and would get special prizes. But community members had to agree that that was important oftentimes to supply the money. So yes, they were funded by the government in part, but only, um, you know, small amounts in comparison to the kind of funds that they raised from community members. And so over time, as you see more baked goods classes, you see a lot of uh, leaders in the community, for example, or people with businesses sponsoring classes for uh, cakes and for bread and for other baked goods, not only because they thought I'm sure they thought these items were important. Uh, they probably thought they were traditional of domesticity and the proper womanhood, but also because they valued these items. And so they would um, sponsor classes where in return for some of these items, this doesn't happen as much anymore, but in return for the prize winning item, they would donate a certain amount of money. And so if you look at how prize money and the, the amount of prize money awarded to different categories and different items at fairs, you can get a sense of what they what items were thought important and and what items may be less so. Does that lead to any business opportunities for women? Obviously, there's part of this whole process, I, I would imagine, is selling things and being seen as a, a good producer of whatever it is you're producing. But as prize money is increasing for things like baking, as you say, does that create increasing opportunities for the women who are participating in those categories to find work outside of the home to sell these items, to, to find a larger customer base, perhaps, and create a new income for the household through the products that they are creating? That's a really good question, Sean. Um, you know, for for livestock breeders, that was one of the reasons that they exhibited at fairs, because if they had prize winning cattle or sheep or, or pigs or whatever the animal was, they would get a reputation and their animals would be valued more and they could sell them for more money. In terms of women's exhibits, um, you see this a little bit in some maybe the fine arts uh, and some of the women, even though they were there were categories in the 19th century. And this changes in the 20th century to professional and amateur, but they could exhibit their artwork and it was judged and presumably if they did well um, that that would get, garner them some sort of reputation there were women that participated in some of the domestic manufacturers or fancy work um, that were also seamstresses um, that uh, may have made um, an income from some of those items I don't get a really good sense of that maybe in the baking um, necessarily that especially because the period I'm looking at as well is even though I go up until 1970, but with the baking, um, it does seem to me more about home baked goods rather than commercial, commercially baked goods. And there is a difference because there are categories for some commercial items as well as quote unquote homemade, you know, um, but that does change over time, and it, you know, the commercial, um, the com the the businesses uh, tended um, 
to drop off in terms of participation versus the individuals. Mm -hmm. But one thing I will say is um, companies would profit from the baking sections because you had local mills, flour mills that would award prizes if women used their flour in their baked goods, they would sponsor classes. And then you had, multi, you know, national multinational companies like Robin Hood flour, that not only did they advertise in fair prize lists that, you know, nine out of 10 winning entries were made with Robin Hood flour last year or something like that. They'd also um, supply significant amounts of money to various fairs across the province promoting Robin Hood flour. If women used Robin Hood flour, if they provided a receipt with their purchase and they won, they, they would bump up the compensation. So they would win standard prize maybe from the agricultural fair, but then they would also get additional money from Robin Hood flower. So companies used fairs as opportunities for advertising their products as well. And it wasn't just flour, it could be oh, all sorts of baked goods. The idea though, that these companies, so if you're producing flour, you, you want obviously women to use your, your flour. It strikes me that this goes along with the idea of recognition that we talked about earlier. So it's not just about any political recognition or broader social recognition. There's a business recognition here too. And you see this throughout the 20th century as well with, with other segments of the population where the business community recognizes the economic potential that has been ignored. And, and it strikes me that when we're talking about agency of women, this is a big part of it as being seen as major contributors to the economy by economic leaders, by business leaders who had previously not considered en masse a women's market. So the, the idea of, of women earning this recognition that obviously they had always been contributing to the economy, contributing to these communities, but you're seeing this on a broader scale. So it, it strikes me that for as much as there's so much talk at this time, late 19th, early 20th century about political agency, these are good examples of economic agency as well. Oh, definitely. Like in the 19th century, that was the reason they started including women's work, right? Women's exhibits, items that women made because they recognized that they were contributing to the economy. It wasn't just men on the farm. Um, women's, of course, women were doing a lot of the farm labor that was unrecognized as well. But even items that people understood women were making weren't necessarily represented at those early fairs. And that was something they wanted to correct moving forward. And by the 20th century, you still have a recognition that women are contributing, if not to a national or a, a commercial, you know, market, they're contributing to their household by being thrifty, by being able to save money by canning their own goods, for example. Yeah. And maybe they could sell those goods, certainly. Yeah. And, and then, of course, not just as producers, but as consumers. Right. So that example that we just talked about with Robin Hood Flower. So women are not only important because of what they produce, but they're also recognized now as important as consumers and increasingly so into the 20th century. It's almost like, you know, how if you go to a barbecue and like all the side dishes, the woman makes all the side dishes and like does all the marinating of the meat. 
and then the man goes out and stands in front of the barbecue while it cooks and everybody thanks him for cooking like it it's that sort of thing uh that's taking place when you're talking about the recognition of women's work and the the unseen work that increasingly starts to be recognized through the course of these fairs and how much of that process is conscious do we have women on these organizing committees who are outwardly saying, whether in the, the papers you read or in the newspapers you read, that they're actively seeking this, that this is part of a larger project for them? Or is this an unconscious thing that it just kind of happens and the women themselves are, are there and they're active participants, but they're not outwardly explicitly stating that it's part of some sort of a larger project or, or part of the larger movement of greater recognition of women's participation in all areas of society that's happening at this time. That, yeah, it's, it's a great point. And you really, of course, these conversations, I'm sure, were going on earlier. And you start to see in the 1910s and 1920s, women still weren't participating in great numbers at the Ontario Agricultural, uh, uh, Ontario Association of Agricultural Societies meetings. And you, they invited some guest speakers trying to say, you know, how should we include women in our organizations? And, and they would, you know, some of these women would outline what they needed to do to increase participation. But it's really in the 1930s um, when you have the first women's division would be the first women's division president was Ethel Monture. And she was one of those people. She really should be credited with so much for including women in the leadership. Um, and I talk about this in my book, but at one point she's talking about, you know, how women really do want to serve alongside men for the betterment of their communities. And she was one of those women that was going to the provincial annual convention and not necessarily feeling welcome. And she says at one point, like, you know, in some quarters, we're not very welcome here. But she also said, well, we're going to be there just the same. Right. So there's a recognition that even though some of these men wanted women to exhibit at fairs, they wanted them to visit. They didn't necessarily want them in a leadership role or, or trying to direct what that fair looked like. And that really starts to change in the 1930s and then uh, during the war, the Second World War, women are taking on greater organizational roles in these in, in various agricultural societies. And so by the post-war period, you have more women who have now become directors that are not just in the women's section of that agricultural society. So in some in most agricultural societies, there's a separate main fair board and then there's a women's uh, auxiliary there was definitely a recognition that they weren't receiving the same respect that men did they weren't receiving the same privileges and that they really wanted to have more say over the work that they were doing at fairs which was really incredible um they from early on everyone recognized that fairs would not be successful without their contributions, and yet they weren't necessarily getting that official recognition. And, and I talk about this more in the book about how names changed over time. Initially, women weren't even recognized by name. And then some women are allowed allowed to be on uh, certain groups or departments within fairs. 
but only the male supervisor's name is provided. Uh, they don't even list the women that are involved and how then they list the women involved, but it's, you know, Mrs. John Smith. Right. She, yeah. You know, it, at the time, I guess that was the custom for some. So you wouldn't even, and that was kind of frustrating too when I was writing this book because I didn't even know some of these women's first name because they never went, they were never identified by their by their first name. And I have a great quote in the book too, one of the women I interviewed, and this is in the 1970s, where, you know, all the women were being identified uh, by their husband's first name. And she finally said, no, you know, I want to be identified by my name. Like, this is, you know, I did the work. He's not the one doing the work. This is my exhibit. This is, you know, so we need to be recognized by name. We need to uh, make a place for ourselves. Yeah. And you see, there's there's nothing more frustrated at times than going through old things. And, and this happens to me when looking at the CBC files, when you're looking at some of the, the staff members that they are listed as Mrs list husband's name and yeah. it's i don't want to write that uh when i'm talking about who this is like i want to write whatever their name was like they didn't come into the office and their colleagues weren't saying oh hi ron johnson to the woman who had just come in to do her job like i want to know what they called her but they didn't write it down like that And there's a somewhat viral story in within the last year a woman in georgia whose husband had died and she voted under like her her name, her legal name, she took her full husband's name. So people assumed that they saw his name, he's dead. They're like, oh, it's voting fraud. And there's a great interview of her at her front step of like, no, I, I voted. Like, get off my get off my deck, basically. So you, yeah. you see, like, it, it's one of those things that you still see remnants of, but it's it, it can be very difficult within historical research when you want to talk about women and their roles but the only thing that officially was written down is their husband's name with the missus in front of it it's it's incredibly frustrating at times to go through with that for sure and as you you know that example that you just cited um for that woman she's that like she's decided that it, and at the time too um the early 20th century this was a you know, you were a sign of respectability, right, was to be identified that way. And and so obviously that has changed significantly. But, yeah, no one would blink an eye at that practice, whereas today it's it's seen as really incredible. Mm -hmm. So, um, yes, yeah, definitely a challenge. And it's it's tough to even but even trying to make decisions about you know, using first names in print versus last names and right. what would women prefer. And the standard is to use the last name. As I mentioned, like that one example, like she was, she mentioned, I want to be known by my first name as well as my last name. And so that is important for sure. So these things still happen, not only in Ontario, but across the country, there are still fairs. We, we said fall fairs and certainly where, where we grew up, there's uh, annual fall fairs and, I think a lot of people go to them. A lot of people like them. So when people go to a fair like this, what remnants could they look for from the era that you're talking about? And what connections could be drawn from the the communities that you are tracking in this book to maybe some of the contemporary things that we see every year at these events? Well, yeah, and that's that's a question, right? Like people always ask, you know, 
Agri- the agricultural fair, the fall fair today, is it just this like nostalgic kind of events? Or do people tend to still make these goods and things? Well, if they're still exhibiting them, yes, there are segments of the society that are participating and, and these types of exhibits and these types of competitions are important to them. And I do go into the book, even though I, I kind of wrap up in my analysis by 1980, um, I do talk about even at that time, there was some discussion about balancing kind of traditional items that would be found at an earlier fair with newer items. And you see changes in technology and, and societal change through some of the types of items. There were there was um and I think in the domestic science classes, there were some like TV dinners that they were promoted classes type of things. And uh, some of the fabrics were changing. But generally, today's fair, it's about promoting what rural people, I think, still value um, in their communities. So there is still those items. They represent certain characteristics about rural communities that people still hold on to and still find important. And while there's still competitions, I would argue that are, you know, um, very much important to industries. Uh, Cattle competitions, very popular still. This is still important for a lot of those exhibitors to make a name for themselves in their respective industries. Um, Horse shows, of course, as well, you could argue. But in terms of looking specifically at women's work, um, a lot of that work is still valued for the self-expression that it allows them for some of those other characteristics that I've mentioned before in terms of the skill sets, their ability to provide for themselves and their families. Uh, Those aren't old concepts and and they continue on. Yeah, and my mom, within the last 20 years i don't know the last time she put it in but she did win an award for her mustard pickle at the georgetown fall fair there so, you go you know, right I have access yeah. to award-winning mustard pickle in my life yeah you wonder you know everyone during this pandemic if there's going to be everyone's talking about baking <laughs> yeah. baking bread and things like that if there'll be a resurgence in some of these quote-unquote uh traditional kind of homemade goods we could go on to and talk about changes in, in in competition and and how that has changed over the fair and and its ability to serve educational purposes and whatnot and but I, I really think ultimately I wanted to understand women's involvement in fairs not only the how their involvement was constrained and of course I'm putting their participation in this broader framework yes. They operated in a patriarchal society. And yes, there were a lot of uh, constraints um, that they were bound by, but they worked actively to improve their circumstances. And and they found a lot of joy in the work that they did. And they made lasting friendships. Um, They found sisterhood and they found empowerment through a lot of the work that they were doing for these groups as well. So I think that's you know, important perspective, too, to, to consider when we're talking about the agricultural fair, because you can kind of get overwhelmed by some of the injustices that you see in the historical record and how women were treated and, and the limitations placed upon them. But I, I 
hope that this work also shows the agency that these women had in improving their circumstances, in making spaces for themselves on the fairgrounds, the broader implications that that had for their communities too. And then also just, you know, the community that they created, the sisterhood that they created at these events is, is really something that I enjoyed learning about, too. Yeah, and I think everyone will enjoy reading about it. So, again, the book is Cultivating Communities, Women and Agricultural Affairs in Ontario. Jody, if people want to pick up the book or if they want to learn more about some of your other work, uh, we talked before we started to record, you're doing some work on things like supply management within agriculture. So if people want more just about you and, and your work in general, and of course, to pick up the book, where should they go? Well, yeah, so it, the book itself is now available through McGill Queen's University Press. So um, definitely check out the press's website if you're interested in a copy. I have a book launch on Thursday, February 17th. That is through the Rural History Roundtable. Catherine Ann Wilson is hosting that. I'm going back to where I did my doctorate, the University of Guelph, to kind of celebrate the work that was done there. So, yeah, so if you can attend the book launch and all of this information, you can find on my Twitter at Jody Nurse. And uh, just if you Google my name, there's a few websites with more information. And, and like you said, uh, my interests have definitely changed since I did this work. Um, when I finished my Ph.D., I started a postdoc and started, you know, very in some ways, very different research, focusing on agricultural marketing schemes, on supply management in Canada. Um, I'm now looking at agricultural marketing in a transnational context and trying to understand uh, why we have the various systems that we do. But still fundamentally, I'm interested in work that investigates dynamics of power. And so while that may have been dynamics of power on the fairgrounds between women and men, that is now dynamics of power between producers and others in the supply chain. So, and forever, I think I'll always be focusing on the rural experience, uh, at times more the agrarian experience, I suppose. But um, yeah, I'll continue to uh, further those those studies of what I love best, yeah. which is uh, rural society. Yeah. And certainly timely with uh, everything going on in the world and also the census numbers came out with the contraction of rural communities as the, yep. the, the move to urban spaces continues broadly in the country. So certainly very relevant work that you're doing there, Jody, and uh, encourage everybody to check it out. So again, Jody Nurse, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much, Sean. So there you have it, my chat with Jody Nurse, and I thank her for joining me in what was uh, very difficult circumstances technologically. Uh, it took uh, a while for us to get it together. We had some connectivity issues over the course of that. You, I don't know if you could hear. I certainly couldn't hear it that closely on the edit when we finally put it all together. But we had to actually switch from our typical platform to another platform in the middle of it. I don't know what was going on with that. But I appreciate her patience with me figuring it all out. Uh, and I think it was certainly worth it because Jody is certainly one of the best in the business here in the country. So certainly encourage you to check out Cultivating Communities from our friends at McGill Queens University Press. And uh, that one was a lot of fun 
for me. And I hope you enjoyed it as well. So that will do it for this week. Thank you everybody for listening. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show, wherever it is you got your podcast, do the likes, ratings, comments, all that good stuff helps other people find the show, keeps us growing. And of course, head on over activehistory.ca, all of our episodes available under the podcast tab. Check out all the great written work over there. And if you want to let me know what you want to hear on the show, you can find me on Twitter at the Sean Graham or HistorySlam at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Hope you're doing well out there in this crazy world. We'll be back with you again next week. But until then, if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.